Hello, friends, and thank you for joining Christ Church Online. As we continue our Lenten teaching series, Beautiful Attitudes, we are joined by the very Reverend Dr. Laurie Thompson from the Trinity School for Ministry. Dr. Thompson will be preaching this week on Blessed Are the Meek and Blessed Are Those Who Hunger and Thirst for Righteousness. Here he is with this week's Lenten teaching. Thank you for listening. Jared, would you forgive me and give me permission to do one more advertisement? Um, we have a great preacher coming for our graduation this year. We're going to be celebrating celebrating our 40th commencement. Um, and uh, the man whose vision was the one who, who helped buy that grocery sco- store many years ago is going to be the preacher, and he's sitting right there. So pray for him that he give us a good word. Uh, we're also going to honor him with an honorary doctorate that he's probably got thousands of already, but we're still going to give him another one. Um, we're, we're excited about that. I'm a bit of a history buff, and um, actually, I'm going to add one more prayer. Can I pray again? Do you guys like to pray? Yes. All right. Uh, I ask you just to pray that uh, God would anoint my words and my thinking tonight. Pray also that he'd anoint your heart and your mind to receive what he has for you tonight, his gift. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm a bit of a history buff, and uh, that's gone way back even to remember fifth grade, we were asked to identify our favorite character in history. And most of my friends said people like uh, Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant. And I gave a name that no one recognized. Francis Marion. Do you notice that out of this whole congregation, only one person recognized the name? <laughs> you see, you and I, but yeah. And, and, and so Francis Marion is probably known to a lot of you under the name The Swamp Fox. And for some of you, you probably know him from that movie that Mel Gibson starred in a few years ago. The real historical character had very little to do with the movie. So uh, don't see the movie. I don't recommend it. Uh, but uh, The Swamp Fox was a man who... Um, he was an unusual man that, that, that uh, lived and grew up in, um, in South Carolina, and he was given the name Swamp Fox by a man named Bannister Tarleton, who, who was one of the British uh, cav- uh, cavalry people that tried to chase him through the swamps. And one, one day actually went 26 miles to try to capture him, and he kept losing him in every turn. And, and um, he just got exasperated, and he said, this guy is like a Swamp Fox, and, and the name stuck for years. But what I want you to know about the Swamp Fox um, is that he's, he's still deeply loved and remembered in, in South Carolina, for those of you who, who go down to South Carolina. And um, uh, recently I went down to a little village called Utah Springs, Utahville, um, in the middle of South Carolina. And uh, it was very exciting for me because on September 8, 1781, a very significant battle happened at Utah Springs. Um, in that particular battle, General Nathaniel Green, who was uh, one of uh, George Washington's top generals, uh, came down and brought the Continental Army, and it was the first really big fight. Up until that point, they'd had a lot of little skirmishes and, and small fights, um, but it was a big fight. And there was a real question as to how the um, American militia, the local militia, and the, and the real Continental uh, Army would, would fight together, and they, they weren't sure how it would go. And when the battle began, began, 
um, it started really well. As a matter of fact, they routed the British. They routed them. They ran them right out of Utah Springs. Now, they had one problem, though. And that was that General Greene, in order to fortify his, his soldiers, because it was going to be a tough battle, he, he gave them a little, a little dispensation of rum before the battle. And, and they discovered they kind of liked rum. And so they got into the battle, and they chased the Brits right out of the, out of the village and, and discovered that the Brits left behind this huge set of supplies, including lots of rum. And they got a little distracted. And instead of chasing the redcoats, they stopped and started gathering in supplies of rum and various other things. And, and there, were, there were the British running away and looking back and suddenly they realized the Americans weren't chasing them. So they decided to turn around, got a second wind, came back into Utah Springs, and ran the Americans right out of the village. Not one of the more noble moments of American history. So why would I mention to you a battle where we got rather badly beaten? Well, I want this talk tonight to be for you who feel like you're losing the battle. In fact, uh, the Americans in that, in that period of the war, they lost all the battles. They really did. Do your homework. They lost battle after battle after battle. And yet, the Swamp Fox kept pulling together anyone he could and he kept trying to recruit people to help him because he believed in the cause. And he wanted freedom for those local farmers and, and, and he, kept, he kept on fighting. And there's some people tonight that feel like they're losing the battle and losing the battle and losing the battle. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I know there's some of you here tonight that feel you're losing the battle. Maybe if I'm really bold, I could say maybe every one of us feels at times we're losing all the battles. So what do we do? Well, Marion did what he felt he was called to do, which was to keep on keeping on. And the amazing thing is that the British even though they kept winning the battles, started retreating. And eventually they moved to a little place called Yorktown. And at Yorktown, they surrendered. So when you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. When you keep winning battles, and then you end up surrendering? Well, it was moving to me recently to go down and to visit that gravesite where Francis and his wife are buried right below Lake Marion. And to think of what he struggled with and the atrocities and the heartbreaks, but he never took his eye off the goal. And even when it looked like the British had defeated everyone, victory was there. It was the great reversal. And that sounds like a gospel story to me. That when we've lost everything, we win everything. 
Blessed are the meek. What, what does this even mean? Blessed are the meek. What's Jesus trying to teach us when we keep feeling like we're losing that battle? There were lots of people around at that time when Jesus was teaching that knew what power was. In fact, the rabbis knew that power was in learning. And the Greeks knew that power was in the intellect. And the Romans knew that power was in power. But it didn't work, did it? And Jesus comes in and gives this message and this sermon on the mount and tells them, blessed are the meek. What's that mean? Gentle, humble, courteous, considerate? But exercising some sort of self-control. But that seems so impossible. And yet the blessed are the meek are those who actually humble themselves before God. And ultimately they are also the people who long to see God triumph over evil. People who believe in the cause of good over evil. And the Christian who looks at the world groans because the world is such a mess. Evil seems to be winning. They seem to be winning all the battles. But at the same time, there's something different about Christians, isn't there? Because they're happy because of the hope set before them. So our hearts are breaking. Our hearts are breaking at the battle being lost. But at the same time, there's still hope being held out for us. The hope is still there. So a Christian lives in a state of conflict with hearts breaking over the victories of evil, but with the confident hope still being presented to us. Now, here's where it gets tricky. We're told that we're to have a humble and a gentle attitude towards others. But that's got to begin with a right attitude towards ourselves. And this is where it gets really kind of tricky. Because we don't mind condemning ourselves. For after all, we know what goes on inside this heart, this mind, and this heart. And it's not always good. In fact, usually it's not any of those things. But it's fine for me to say that Lori is a miserable sinner. When I go and confess, by the way, that was a great confession prayer tonight, Jared. That was really good. I want a copy of that. But as I was going through it, every one of them was zinging me. Now that's one thing for me to say that I'm a sinner. But if Jared got up here and introduced me and said, Lori is really a filthy sinner and has no business being the dean of a seminary. I'd want to take him outside and punch him out. I mean, don't you feel the same way when somebody else condemns you? Hmm. But we don't mind condemning ourselves. And condemn we might. So what I'm pointing to here is there's a, there's a certain kind of hypocrisy going on in us. Because the truth is we are miserable sinners and offenders. 
So we have to have kind of an outside perspective. And it's not just other people. And it's not just ourselves. So who is it? How do we get a right view of ourselves and of others and of God? Now I have to say that I've got one more illustration of this kind of thing about criticizing ourselves. I have to use a sports illustration. I don't mind criticizing the Pittsburgh Penguins because they've become my team. So I can be critical of the Penguins. But my boys, who in the early years grew up in Philadelphia, they became Flyers fans. Now when they criticize the Penguins, it's a different matter, isn't it? So that's the kind of bind we get ourselves in. It's this judgment game that goes back and forth and this kind of hypocritical, I want to stand above the criticism of others even though we know we deserve it. Well, how do we get a right view? Well, we get a right view of ourselves when we, when we yield our pride and we surrender as loving little children in the arms of a caring parent. A little child knows how to do that. They surrender, they yield. And they let the love of the parent come and wrap them around. Guide them, correct them, but love them and affirm them. And when we start to think we can handle things, we're in the worst place of peril. For after all, we are the poor and the humble oppressed saints of God and nothing more. And yet, in this promise of the Sermon on the Mount here, Jesus promises us we shall inherit the earth if we are meek, if we yield. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about what we believe about ourselves is linked to how we treat each other as well. There's kind of a a connection there, a symbiotic connection. And ultimately, it is also connected to how we understand that God sees us. He says, meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in an attitude and a conduct with respect to others. The man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. Thus we are a dependent child, and thus we are loved, and as we yield and receive that, our heart can be nothing but meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I think of of my hero as a child, Francis Marion, and he kept losing, and he kept losing, but he kept knowing who he was and what he was called to be. And he kept pressing on until he received the reward. He continued to lose, and yet ultimately he won everything. He had inherited the earth, as it were. And as God's children, we shall inherit the earth with our king. So if you feel like you're losing the battles, don't fret. Because you are losing the battles. But you've won the war. You've won the war. 
He's won it for you and is calling you to that place of reward and blessing. But in the meantime, his instructions are simple. Be nice to each other. It's not that hard. We convince ourselves it's hard. And that's where that hypocrisy in us gets going. But if we yield to the love of that parent, we love out of that. And we love each other. And we care for each other. Now, I've avoided the second verse, which was assigned me tonight, and that is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Simply said, Jesus describes this as an outflow of the previous verse. So if we yield in a meek and tender acceptance of his love and his promise, then we start to thirst and hunger for his righteousness. And the fullness of our souls will be filled, for his love will flood us and flood the world around us as we let go of it. Our confidence that we'll win, that we shall inherit the earth, puts us into a position where we can find that strength, that power that the wicked never have. You know, as I'm growing older as a Christian, I find my heart is growing more compassionate for the wicked. Because they think they have all that power and that strength. And the more I watch them, the more I realize they have no power, they have no strength. And they've lost the war. The godless may boast and throw their weight around, yet all possession of the reward eludes them. You see, in this sermon on the, on the mount, Jesus is telling us that if we're right at the bottom of humbly adoring him at his feet, the nice thing is if we're down there already, we don't have we're far safe. to fall. And that deep satisfaction can fill our hearts and our minds as we're drawn into his action, as we're drawn into his love for the world around us. He puts us in a right relationship with him, but he also uses that justifying forgiveness in Christ and then transforms us. I want to close tonight by asking you to do a little, little exercise with me, if you would. Um, and I'd like you to think for a moment about a moment when something caught you by surprise. A moment... Why don't you close your eyes just for a second and, and think about a moment where, where God suddenly seemed to do something in your life that just came out of nowhere, a big surprise, either something painful or something beautiful. But he did something that really caught you by surprise. I'm going to ask you just to throw out some words of feeling that you feel as you think about that memory. Can you throw out some one-word feelings for me? Joy? Joy? Peace. Peace? Happy? Happy tears. Happy tears. Happy tears. Nice. Devastated. Devastated. 
Shocked? Good words, good words. I want to challenge you tonight as you think about those words and think about those feelings. To think about your loving Father in heaven and how who he is meets the feelings that you felt. And give thanks tonight in your heart for what you've learned about him in those painful surprises. Bless and rejoice him for what he taught you about himself. In those happy changes and happy surprises, bless him and thank him for what he taught you about himself. Father God, this night as we yield to you and hear your teachings through our Lord and Savior, we acknowledge to you that meekness doesn't come naturally to us. And we acknowledge that we're struggling in that terrible, awful feeling that we're losing battle after battle. But we rejoice in the knowledge that you died for us and gave yourself for us. And so, Lord, we humbly bow the knee and as your meek, we receive your promise. Keep us, Lord, on our knees that we might inherit the earth. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.